Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from episode 57, our introduction to the Liver Forum with Executive Director Veronica Miller and our longtime friend, Manal Abdul-Malik, plus Marvold, a conversation from season two, episode 50. The webpage from season two that was viewed most often in the last three months by our listeners and downloaders. I start this conversation suggesting that the findings of the Placebo Arm Project need to translate into guidelines for researchers to standardize them properly. Veronica Miller describes in some detail how the forum is organizing the trial and what she considers some of the critical success factors for a placebo cohort. She notes that this activity should benefit individual pharmaceutical sponsors most because they can assess their data in the context of placebo response and decide how to recruit patients for clinical trials and manage them through the trials. She also believes that if these metrics are feasible to implement, they will find their ways into clinical practice as well. Manal Abdulmalik notes that another benefit might be to give regulators access to larger data sets that mirror how the trials are done, which can leverage resources and provide benchmarks at the same time. It was fantastic to allow some of you who sit on the outside to learn a little bit about the liver form. Certainly fantastic for me. As I note to Veronica Miller at the end of the episode, I'd love to have repeat this process every three or four months. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the conversation on our LinkedIn discussion group. Ultimately, somebody working with the forum need to issue some guidelines to make sure that once you've cleaned this up a little bit, that what Jorn describes as the challenge happens, which is that people apply this learning correctly as compared to, well, gee, this is great to know, but here's the study nurse I have here today. Not that that's what you said you would do, Jorn, but I could see other locations that were a little more taxed or less scrupulous taking this information and not adopting it nearly well enough. So what do you think it will take beyond simply learning to make it happen? Manal Abdelmalik. So framed a little differently, what will it take for the success of a placebo working group to be able to make the most incremental advancements and paradigm shifting uh, ascertainments that will benefit the field as a whole. Veronica, you might be really equipped to lend some insights with regards to this. I mean, what do you think it's going to take and and the level of buy-in, if you will, and the structure that you had envisioned with regards to management of data and, and sharing of data and implementation of the multiple questions and analyses that might need to be done? Veronica Miller. Right, thanks. And both of what you and your have said is just so right on and also the way you ask your questions, Roger. So the way we envision this project to work is by number one, a sponsors, because they're the one industry sponsors, uh, willingness to share the data. And so far, we've had very, very good responses from that. And I think we need to divide it into a couple of different components. One of them is sort of this general raising all of our collective knowledge about describing the placebo experience. Let's talk about the placebo patient journey, right? What happens to the patients on a placebo arm when they are recruited into a clinical trial, because that's very important, because then we're going to be comparing this to other patients that are recruited into a clinical trial that are on treatment, right? So a patient that undergoes all of the, you know, the study nurse talking to them, enrolling, coming in for visits, maybe being a little bit more uh, prone to stick to a healthier diet and maybe walk a little bit more just because they're part of a study and they're so suddenly energized about, about the situation. And so it's very different from other real world data cohorts 
which are also important. But this is a very unique example. So we can learn a lot collectively. And of course, that knowledge will be out there. But the other part that I think this will really benefit is also the individual pharmaceutical sponsors, because they're the ones that basically, with the advice of the academic experts, obviously, and and patient input, write the protocols for inclusion exclusion criteria. And so they will want to see how does the data that we have in this cohort apply to the drug that they want to study, the kinds of patients they're interested in enrolling, and what can they expect in terms of a placebo response or disease stability or disease progression, depending on how they select their patients. So we will have both the sort of confidential kind of analysis and then sort of the, you know, for everyone's benefit kind of analysis that will be published. And I think once that data is out there, I mean, pharmaceutical companies, they're into efficiency. If that information is available, I think that will really help them decide how to use that information for selection of patients. And what I found in all the other disease areas I've worked in is something that is applied through drug development usually finds its way into clinical practice. For example, HIV viral load initially was only done in the context of clinical trials. It became a surrogate marker. And then before you knew it, everyone was applying it in the clinic and it was written into clinical treatment guidelines to use viral load as a treatment outcome to monitor for treatment failure, etc. But it started in drug development. So I have no doubt, Roger, that once these pieces of information come out, that they will not be translated, first of all, to make overall drug development more efficient. And to the extent that they are feasible to implement, we'll find their way into clinical practice as well. That makes tremendous sense. And it's it- imbues a project with this with the kind of energy and anticipation I think it deserves. So that that's a great way of looking at it. We're kind of rolling towards the bottom of the hour. So before we get to closing question, any comments, Manel, Yorn, and Veronica, you want to share that we've we've not uh, wrote this whole subject that we've not touched on yet? No, I think it, it will even serve our regulators well to have access to broader population-based data. It's almost gotten to a point where, you know, we duplicate a placebo arm with every study. We subject hundreds of patients to no potential therapeutic option, not to say that the standard of care isn't a therapeutic option, but if there was a cohort of patients that could create that benchmark for the regulators such that the industry on the same amount of dollars could optimize the sample size of patients who were exposed to these therapies to get a better handle on efficacy and tolerability and duration of treatment necessary to achieve clinically meaningful endpoint, then we've also done both the regulators a service by giving them access to broader data sets that are a mirror image, if you will, or come close to it, the constructs of which these trials are being done. And we've also empowered the industry to make the very cumbersome and very large dollar amount to do these studies maybe go a little bit of a longer way such that they can treat more patients of interest with their therapies or combination of therapies over yet again, replicating a placebo cohort, and maybe we can leverage limited resources more effectively. Jörn Schattenberg. Well, this is how I see the liver forum function and uh, bringing together all these sponsors. And I think, you know, it's important, Veronica can say more about that to say this is not a closed business group. This is something that fosters interaction if you're new to the field uh, where you're welcome to join and, and, and support and bring in your ideas or at least ask questions you're having. And, you know, it would be such a great step forward 
initiative, the project, as Manal highlighted this, you know, being able to enroll a smaller placebo arm, picking up, building up your program on the established placebo responses. If that could come into uh, clinical trials, uh, that would be huge for the field. Even beyond that, getting the patient's voice in there and getting their feedback, how should we assess quality of life? All these things are important next to the primary efficacy analyses as secondary outcomes. It's something that I learned a lot from during my interaction with the Liver Forum. And as such, uh, I think it's uh, it's a very useful tool to the field. So in closing, I think, well, thank you again, Manal and Joran, for all of your comments. It's just very inspiring. And the reason why I love my job so much is to work with people like you. And I think kind of touching on what Manal was saying, the opportunity here is it goes beyond uh, just learning about what happens to people that are enrolled in a clinical trial but are randomized to placebo. We had a workshop, a, a collaborative workshop with our Berkeley statisticians last week where Lisa Lavange was talking. Now, Lisa Lavange used to be the head statistician at the FDA and she's now academic in North Carolina, but she's published sort of the seminal papers on the master protocols, which is the platform trials, umbrella trials, etc. And she talked again at this workshop, which had to do with real world data about the need to share placebo arms. And we can go the route of a master protocol and a platform trial design, which is hugely complicated in setting up that infrastructure to do it as a formal master protocol platform trial, which, you know, people, it's not for the faint of heart, believe me. But, you know, with this kind of a shared placebo from past studies, you know, I think we really need to push the envelope here a little bit too and see kind of, is there something in between a sort of fully master protocol platform trial to a shared placebo or every trial having their own placebo arm, but something of a shared placebo in between that doesn't take this incredible infrastructure setup that really prevents most people from even kind of going into that kind of thinking. So I'm really thinking maybe, Manal, we could talk about sort of the additional opportunities here in terms of a shared placebo arm with past placebo patient and current placebo patients. But that's to be discussed. But I've got some ideas about that to take us further. Isn't that half the fun is generating all the ideas? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Listening to this conversation, I'm really excited by how much stuff goes on in the background that folks never get exposed to, how much thinking and how many challenging ways of dealing with important issues that, that folks just never get to access or deal with. So I'm, I'm glad we could have this conversation, Veronica. I'm hoping we can do this every three, four months. Thank you, Roger. A different elements of what you do, because I think it will help our audience. And gosh, I know it's helped me a bunch. Closing comment, no more than one sentence, okay? Because we all like to talk, all four of us. One thing you would like people who listen to this episode today to take away with them. You know, this disease of NAFLD and MASH and subsequent cirrhosis is a public health crisis. And it's going to take a village of people. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week, possibly with a preview episode for Nashtag, possibly with something else. We'll announce that later in the week. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.